Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann. So we're talking about this servant that's going to come, this Messiah who's coming. By the way, I love the fact that he's a servant. He comes to serve. Most people who assume the position, the Messiah position, the Lord position, the king position, is going to come with such awesome force and such awesome power, everyone will have to say, whoa, we are going to follow him whether we really want to or not. Lord says, I'm not coming that way. And that kind of surprises people. I mean, they're thinking, well, no, we anticipate that's exactly how Messiah is going to come. Rome is going to have its jack boot on the neck of God's people, and they anticipate everybody at the time of Jesus thought, here's going to come Messiah who's going to fight back and fight back in such a way that Rome's going to run for their lives. And they're surprised. In fact, they don't even believe it when Jesus comes the way that he comes. And so we look at this passage saying, servant, Lord Jesus, come. Verse 4 says, the Lord has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. So the mouth and the ear of the servant is going to be talked about here in these passages. But the first thing it's talked about is the tongue of disciples. First of all, I think it's interesting that Jesus is basically suggesting himself a disciple here. Now, this is 700 years before Jesus comes. But nonetheless, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, through the prophet Isaiah, says when Messiah comes, this Messiah will be a disciple. Someone who has to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That's how the Gospel of Luke talks about it. This is going to be a Messiah. This is going to be a Savior. This is going to be a Jesus. This is going to be a God-man that has to grow, that has to be discipled. That has to learn. And by the way, he's going to have the tongue of a student. So a disciple basically says what the instructor instructs. And he has learned from the Father. He has learned from the Word. He has learned from Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He has learned from the prophets. He has sung the Psalms his whole life. And so he knows what to articulate. He knows what to say. And in fact, he does say it. And in fact, gets him in trouble. But when he comes, it's interesting. He's the Word made flesh. And I love what Paul says to the house church at Ephesus. He says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up. When Jesus comes, he's going to build up the weary and the downtrodden. He's going to build up the poor and the oppressed. He's going to build up the leper and the harlot. He's going to build up the very people that everybody else particularly at the time of Jesus, would like to ignore. And nonetheless, he comes and says, that's exactly who my mouth will be given for. I didn't know this, but did you know it takes 72 different muscles to produce speech? You say, man, I got me a workout this week. Yeah, indeed you did. You worked out 72 muscles. And then 16,000 words come out of our mouth every day. That means... There's about 860.3 million words in the average lifetime of an American or of a day springer. So, all those nouns, all those verbs, all those adjectives, all those sentences, be an interesting question to ask. What does that say about my life? All the words of Arctic, all the sentences, all the paragraphs, what do those paragraphs say about my life? And furthermore, what does it say about the condition of my heart? 
At the end of it all, we look at the words of Jesus and say, holy, righteous. We say radical. We say different. We say, I want to be like that. And that's why we're here this morning. And so we believe in these words. We believe in this direction. And we believe that anything Jesus was, he wants us to be. So any, in as much as Jesus' speech was something more than unwholesome, anything Jesus was as far as righteous speech or holy language, that's what he wants our lies and our words and our verbs and our nouns and our adjectives to be as well. I think that I have been extraordinarily blessed in the last, particularly six years of my life. Um, I ran into a guy one time named Crawford Howe. And uh, we enjoyed a relationship, but he was moving on with his life. And we were sitting around a dinner table, he and I and our wives. And I looked over at him at the end of about three hours. We were just talking, chatting, chatting, chatting. Time's getting by. And I, I looked up and said, listen, I don't want this to end. I don't want this relationship to end, but you're about ready to walk out, and I'm never going to see you again. He says, well, it doesn't have to end. I said, it doesn't? He said, no. I said, well, how are we going to keep getting together? He says, well, you, you can call me. I said, I can call you. He said, yeah. I said, like, when am I going to call you? He said, I don't know, about Friday, 10 o'clock. I said, well, yeah, but I want a relationship. He says, well, then call every Friday at 10 o'clock. So for the last six years, that's what I've done, 10 a.m., a Friday, when you're probably trying to look for me and wondering where my pastor at, I was with Crawford on the phone, chatting back and forth. It was interesting because what he does is he disciples future district superintendents. That's what he does. That's what he does best. Future leaders of the church. And so I, uh, almost the first conversation I had, I told him, I ain't going to be no district superintendent. I can't imagine anything lower for my life than to be that guy. I don't want it. And I think that kind of bursts his bubble a little bit. He says, well, I promise you a relationship, so what? So we start talking to each other in a way that's kind of different than, hey, he's building me up for a future leadership position. And we had a wonderful time of it. Well, he died a week and a half ago. And at 10 a.m. on Friday, I was kind of moving towards my phone thinking, I don't have to anymore. I, I, I don't, there's no reason to now. We were at his, uh, his funeral. And the, the night before his funeral, I... Uh, Hal Perkins, some of you remember Hal was here speaking a couple years ago, and Hal and I took Clark, his son, out, and we knew that Clark just needed to vent some and cry some, and so we were at Applebee's, and, and he was doing that, and it, it, was, it was a beautiful time, holy time, and I learned some stories about Crawford I didn't know, particularly about his last moments, his last uh, day or two. Apparently, uh, he was uh, on his deathbed, and he had family around him, about six of them around his deathbed. And I knew anything about Crawford. I knew that he knew that we are called to die well. But to die well, you kind of better have a plan because it's not easy to die. It's usually pretty painful. It's usually kind of you're in a panic because you can't quite get your life together like you think it ought to be together. And so you don't know what to do and you're kind of screaming out and you're a little bit scared. And he knew that's not what I want to do in my last moments. So... I know for certain, because uh, I know him, I know what he did. He memorized a poem that he wanted to articulate verbally on his deathbed. He memorized a poem back in May. I'd, I'd read it to you, but I'm, I'm writing a book about him, so I'll, I'll put it in a book. You can get that. 
But one of the things that poem said is, God is here, and he's there, and he's everywhere in between, including in this moment. Uh, it's, it's a precious poem. He'd, he'd had it. Well, now he's on his deathbed, and he can't talk. And you, you could tell, Clark said he was frustrated. He'd been preparing for this moment. And so he asked for a piece of paper. He starts writing out this poem. <laughs> he says, if I can't say it, I'm going to say it anyway. He starts writing out this poem. He hands it around. They, they all read it. And then, because he can't talk, I firmly believe he had planned what he wanted to say to everybody around that circle. But he can't talk now. So he looks up to heaven for about 10 seconds. Then he comes down and he locks his eyes right there on the person close to him. Then he looks up for about 30 seconds, about 30 seconds, locks his eyes in. And I, 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 every, every, every time he, uh, he ended a conversation with me, he would say this, Matt, I love you so much. I'm so proud of you. I know for certain that's what he was said, t- telling them. Locked eyes. I love you so much. I'm so very proud of you. Then he looks up to heaven, comes down and locks eyes with the second person. Ah. Looks up to heaven, comes down and locks eyes with the third person. He goes around that circle four times. And you can't tell me that words weren't heard around that circle. You can't tell me that even if he hadn't planned for that moment, and I know that he did, that nonetheless, Jesus was speaking powerfully into that moment. And I'm going to suggest to you, you need to make sure that the words of your life, whether they're articulated out of your mouth or not, speak as Jesus would speak in any moment. And I'm going to tell you right now, you may as well, because you don't know when you're going to leave, you may as well start planning for that moment now. Die well, Jesus did. Into your hands I commit my spirit. I believe with all my heart Jesus knew what he was going to say when he was done. And when he knew I'm about ready to slip away, he had it there. He was ready to go. And he said it. The other thing is articulated here is not just have the mouth of a disciple, but make sure you have an ear of a disciple. Verse 4, he awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. Could it be that Jesus says, I need an ear so I can learn. The Lord God has opened my ear. I will not be disobedient, nor will I turn back. Listen, to, he- to listen, in the Old Testament, the word was Shema. Say Shema. And every morning a Jew would say, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Achad. And every evening he'd say, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Elohenu, Adonai Achad. Which meant, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your meodeka, all your strength. And every morning, every evening, a Jew would say those words. And so that was the most important articulation of the Hebrew faith in everybody's mind. 
But it didn't mean just to say it. It didn't mean just to listen for it. Shema meant, Shema meant, listen, hear. But it also meant to obey. It's not enough just to hear it. You've got to do it. <laughs> I got a friend named Dale Hoffpower. Dale uh, said, I, I had trouble hearing when I was a kid. And the doctor finally did something to make my ears come alive. He says, when my ears came alive, lots of things came alive. He says, one of my favorite things was uh, I'd, I'd open Coke cans my whole life. And uh, I'd never heard fizz before. <laughs> Isn't that great? You know, whoosh, shh. Thought, what is that? He had seen it. He had tasted it. He had had it on his tongue. He had never heard it before. And I thought to myself, whoa, Dale, I wonder how much fizz there is in the kingdom of God. That some of us hear it and some of us don't. But I believe some of that abundant life he wants for us is in the fizz. Could it be? The Lord wants to open up fizz into our ears. Fizz so that we can be all the person he ever dreamed that we could be. Uh, then Dale says, and not only that, kind of interesting thing happened. He said, uh, we were in a discipleship group, and he says, one of the things that me and my son do, he has one son, two girls. He says, uh, we listen to the word of God going down the road. So we stick in. Yeah, they're in the Proverbs right now. They've got Proverbs 13. And it's playing. And as it's playing, he says, my son reaches over and turns down the volume so low you can't even hear it. Then he turns it back up. Then he got down towards the end of the proverb, and he turns it back down and turn it back up again. Now, if you know Proverbs 13, you probably don't. But Proverbs 13, he says, I looked it up to figure out what did I miss. And uh, Hoffpower's son turned it down when it said, a wise son accepts his father's discipline. <laughs> but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. When that was over, he turned it back up. They proceed through the proverb. And then when it came to this, Hmm. He who withholds his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. When that verse was over, the sound came back up. I thought to myself, I wonder if I've ever been, and I didn't, it's a rhetorical question, believe me. I wonder if I've ever listened to scripture that way. The parts that save me and get me to heaven, I really like those. But the parts that say, deny yourself, Take up your cross and follow me, especially when it's going to feel like hell. I'm not so sure I like those parts of the Bible. Or whatever you do to turn down the volume. And Jesus says, you'll find me in those parts. You'll find me in the fizz. And you need to listen for me there. Give me the ear, Lord Jesus, that you had. The ear of a disciple. Number two is this. Salvation is going to come not by war, but by suffering. Could this be true? Verse six. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and from spitting. Listen, there are two words that every Christian ought to know. One is kenosis. Say kenosis. Kenosis. 
That's a Greek word that means empty. So in, in Philippians 2, 7, it talks about he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. And every Christian is called to be like Jesus at that point. You need to empty yourself. But you also need to know a second word, and that's pleurosis. Say it. All right, kenosis and pleurosis. Kenosis is emptying, but pleurosis is filling. He says, I want you to be emptied so that I can fill you. Now, most of us try to do is a little trick. We think we can fool God. I mean, he's not from around here. I think I can get away with this. I used to try to do that with my mom. You know, she's an old lady. What's she going to know? She knew everything. But I'm going to empty myself so I can be filled. And we think because God's not from around here, we can get away with emptying ourselves halfway. And then him filling us the rest. So being half me the way I want it and half him the way he wants it. Yeah, that's how we'll do it. That'll all work out perfect. The truth is he can't fill you. That's not filled. You're not filled if you're only half of him. Truth is you might be emptier than you were before. He says, I want you to be absolutely empty so you can absolutely be full of me, my way, my will, be emptied. Well, the truth is that's exactly what he calls us to. Seven years, 700 years before the crucifixion, this is articulated by the prophet Isaiah. Look down there. Beatings. They were for criminals and fools. Pulled out beards, a sign of contempt. Mocking and spitting showed hatred and insult. And Jesus endured it all because he loved us. Next week, in a very un-Christmas-like passage, we're going to nonetheless preach it. And that is, the baby came that he might grow into tremendous suffering for you and for me. Listen, this passage is unrealistic for us to think in this, these terms because we are Americans. We are used to being powered, empowered. We're using the most powerful people in the world. We are used to winning wars. We are used to prosperity and we are used to comfort. And we believe, we have told ourselves that in that prosperity and in that comfort and in those victories, that's where Jesus people ought to be found. And I got to tell you, this passage and others just like it says, no, it's in suffering where holiness will be found. And if you don't want to be part of that, you can't be part of me. I told you to deny yourself, to take up the cross and to follow me even in tough places. We like it where he's going to say, yeah, I said the sinner's prayer. I'm going to heaven now. He says, yeah. But there are some implications of that heaven for you right here and right now. I'm going to tell you what. It's the most hilarious, meaningful, beautiful life. But it's hilarious and meaningful and beautiful because I'm empty of me. And I'm full of him. That's what makes it hilarious and beautiful and meaningful. Didn't say easy. It's probably not going to be easy. But he's going to bless you every step of the way. And you'll be so thrilled with what he's doing with your life. My son goes to a church uh, in the Lexington area, Ezekiel. Ezekiel over the next few uh, days and weeks, you'll see Ezekiel. Uh, but Ezekiel's going to a church, and he's helping lead worship at that church. And, and uh, about to get married, by the way, May, for those of you who don't know that. But Ezekiel's uh, quite a guy. He, he goes to this church, and 
And I, I like the church. I've always liked the church. In fact, I learned to like the church years ago, well over three decades ago. I don't know. I, I, to date myself now, I think it's like 35, 37, something like that years ago. I went to that church. Not often. But somebody came up to me and said, you need to come to church at Alliance Church. I said, well, why? He says, because they're having revival this week. Well, one thing I don't do, I don't do revivals. I don't want to go no revival. Man, preaching, I don't want to hear preaching over and over and over. Night after night, you kidding me? No. He says, oh, you'll like this guy. I promise it. I thought, well, I, I don't believe you. I'll try one night just to show you it's not true, that I won't like him. The guy's name was Ravi Zacharias. Now, some of you know exactly who that is. If you don't, then copy the name down right now and go listen to anything podcast. And after one podcast, you think, I need to keep listening to this guy. He's good. Ravi, this is before Ravi was big. This is 35 or more years ago. So he wasn't big. In fact, he was complaining at that meeting. You know, I'm not big like Leighton Ford. No one even knows who Leighton Ford is anymore. I'm not a big timer like him. He's a big timer. I'm just a, I'm a scrub coming along. I'm thinking, dude, you're not going to be long. God, listen, I sat on the front row. And listen, if Ronnie Zacharias ever got sick, I, 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 I was thinking about it. I need to write him and say, if you're ever sick, Robbie, don't cancel. I'll show up and I'll do your thing. It won't be my thing, I'll do your thing, because I had it all memorized. One of the poems in particular, not all of the best stuff, I memorized stories, I memorized even poems. I've got a couple of wingdingers of, of, of poetry to give to you. I mean, if you ever want them. In fact, come up to me sometime and say, hey, give me the yellow poem. I had two poems memorized with Ravi Zacharias. This is one of them. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man. When God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part. When he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world might be amazed. Watch his methods. Watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands. How he bends but never breaks when this good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses And with every purpose fuses him and with mighty acts induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what that man is about. I remember memorizing that poem, but I also remember thinking, do I really want God to drill me, thrill me, and skill me like that? Because if you do, There's an emptying that needs to take place. There's a denial that will have to happen. There's a cross that's tailor-made for your back. Most people aren't into that. I want the heaven part. There is no heaven part without the other parts. And so, we believe in this God who comes to us not with bombers and machine guns and machetes, but he comes to us with love and with suffering. The third thing is this. There's a servant commitment. Verse 7 says this. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. I love this. I have set 
my face like flint. With great resolution, I've set my face and I know that I will not be ashamed. When the suffering gets rough, I will go on. When a whip's coming across my back, I will proceed. When they drive nails into my hands and into my feet, when they're laughing at me, where I, when I can't hear from heaven, I will keep going with a resolution, with a face like Flint. I, uh, I'm going to recommend to you a movie. Not this one. This is too tough. Language is too poor. But I went and saw it. They said anybody that wants to know what happened, really happened, at Normandy Beach needs to go to this thing. So I went. Again, don't. But uh, while I was there, I saw this Saving Private Ryan movie that was about the Rangers taking Omaha Beach. We've had, by the way, not many of you would know this, but Wednesday night we had an Army Ranger with us at prayer meeting. And uh, he's a pastor, a Nazarene pastor. He's with us and probably be with us for a short period moving ahead. He's out of town this weekend. But uh, Army Rangers, man, it's, it's like a, it's the special forces. Only the elite of the elite. You've got to be smart. You've got to be strong. You've got to be tough. You've got to go through training like no one else goes through training. And if you're good enough, if you make it and if you endure it, then you can be a ranger. So it's about the rangers taking Omaha Beach. I'm going to say there's lots of reasons not to go see this movie. The language would be one of them. Another one of them is I've never seen a man running carrying his own arm. I mean, it's tough. It's horrific. But you have much appreciation for what those guys did on that day when you do see it. So this is about the Rangers taking Omaha Beach. They receive a mission that we've got to go in deep into enemy territory to save a private Ryan. He's in there. Uh, Some of the brothers have already died. We can't let every brother in that family die. We've got to go help out the mother. Let's go get Private Ryan. Let's bring him back safely. And so they go after skirmish, after skirmish, trying to get the Private Ryan. Some of them are killed along the way. They finally get to Ryan. He's holed up. They say, come on, come with us. We've come to save you. We've got to get you out of here. And he refuses. He says, I'm not going. I'm not going to do it. I've got to stay here. There's a big battle coming. And if I leave my men, they're all going to die. So the Rangers said, all right. If you're not going, we're going to stay here. We're going to fight. We'll stay and fight with you. So they all stay and they all fight. It's gory. It's hard. It's horrific. And almost everybody dies trying to save Private Ryan. And uh, Private Ryan actually lives. And everybody else is dead. And in this last scene, and you can see it up there. That's not a grin. That's a grimace. But Tom Hanks is speaking into the ear of Private Ryan. He says, come here. Private Ryan is close. And in his dying breath, this character played by Tom Hanks is sitting on the ground. He's been shot. He's dying. The battle has been won. Private Ryan has been saved. And as Private Ryan leans into him, Tom Hanks whispers two words. 
earn this. Earn this. Everybody has died so you can live. I've died so you can live. You need to earn this. Now, I have a real problem with this. I have a real problem with this. Because if you see down here, if you remember anything about the movie, Private Ryan's right there. He's an old man now. And he comes back to visit the grave of this Tom Hanks guy. He comes back to visit the grave. And he asks this question of his family. Have I done it? Have I earned it? Am I a good man? He's in torment. The movie starts off with his torment. It ends with his torment. I hate it. And the reason I don't like it is because the ranger motto is not earn this. The ranger motto for 200 years has been sua sponte. Sua sponte means I chose this. Anybody see the difference? Don't spend the rest of your life in agony wondering, have I been good enough? Have I done enough things? Have I earned all these deaths for me? Think in terms of, we chose this so that you, by grace, could live. And instead of living in torment wondering, hey, have I done it? Am I as good as my daddy? Am I as good as Crawford? Do I just got to do better in order to get to heaven? Instead say, no, Jesus died for me. He chose to die for me, to be tortured for me, to bleed for me, so that by grace I can live the life he wants me to live. And this whole thing, a servant commitment is Jesus's. I've committed my life so that you can live. You don't have to earn it. You can't earn it. By grace, live it. And y'all, it's not just that Jesus did that for us. He says, now I want you, you saved ones, to participate with me and to go into the hard, deep, dark crevices of the Jackson metro area, indeed of the world, and participate with me so the people might stop trying to earn it and might accept it by grace through faith. Fourth thing is this. God is on the side of the servant. Do you believe that? God is on the side of the servant. Let me, let me read this to you. Verses 8 and 9. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? I mean, come on. Who's going to contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who's got a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the sovereign Lord, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they're all going to wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. I love, in my Bible, it's Lord God, but in many of your Bibles, it's going to be Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord, never, those words never show up in any of the servant songs except this one. And here, it comes up four times. Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord, Sovereign Lord. And that word sovereign is awesome. It means I am in control. I've got this. There are many things you're not going to be able to get Many things you're not going to be able to do. I need for you to know I've got this thing. I am in control. Now, movie I do recommend for you. Hiding Place. Hiding Place that features a, one of the great personalities of evangelical Christianity. A lady named Corey Ten Boom. The movie is about Corey Ten Boom's family. And by the way, uh, I was... 
about a half hour from her house. I did not know it. I was in Amsterdam, found myself there. Actually, Mr. Henry, I think it was a week uh, this church was trying to get started with the, uh, with the district board, and everybody was hesitant, didn't know if they wanted to do us or not. And, you know, we're trying to get in, and I was in Amsterdam. Mr. Henry was trying to lead the way forward. I was in Amsterdam, kicking my legs up, thinking this is cool. And this, somebody told me, hey, did you know that uh, this, uh, I'm trying to think of, who's a famous girl? Anne Frank. Did you know that Anne Frank's home is just down about five blocks away. Oh, you kidding, Anne Frank? Oh, I, I want to remember, remember the family there. The family of Anne Frank, uh, they eventually go to concentration camp, and she continues to write this diary. It's one of the greatest things you can possibly read if you want a real understanding about what happened. I did not know until I'm about ready to leave. Did you know the Corey Tinboon's about 30 minutes away? Huh? Her house is 30 minutes, and I didn't go. If I had a chance between Anne Frank and Corey Tinboom, I'm going to Corey. I missed it. Corey Ten Boom, they were Christians, and they were trying to do their due diligence and due duty for the Jews, and, uh, and uh, they end up getting caught up and taken to a concentration camp, and they die, except for Corey Ten Boom, who makes it through the experience. And it's a great movie, The Hiding Place. Watch it. But Corey Ten Boom tells an event that took place before that. When she was 10 or 12 years of age, she was traveling with her daddy on a train. And she'd read some kind of poetry that talked about sex sin. She actually saw those words, sex sin. And so on the train, she looks over at her daddy and says, Daddy, Father, what is sex sin? Well, you know, you're not ready for that question. You're thinking, Phew. And so uh, Mr. Ten Boom just kind of stops and looks at Corey. And, and then he responds. And he says, nothing until after he stands up. Because he stands up and takes his traveling case from the rack and sets it on the floor. He says, "Uh, Corey, will you please carry that off the train for me? And Corey Timboon says, well, I stood up and I tried to pick it up. It was way too heavy. I tried to tug at it and I just couldn't move it. And so I said to my father, I said, it's too heavy, Daddy. Yes, he said. And he'd be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. Corey, it's the same way with knowledge. Some knowledge is just too heavy for children. When you're older and when you're stronger, you're going to be able to bear it. For now, you need to trust me to carry it for you. And Corey Ten Boone says, well, I was satisfied. She says, I was more than satisfied. I was wonderfully at peace. Because in that moment, I knew something. I had lots of questions, and there were lots of answers. And there were going to be answers to all my hard questions eventually. But for now, I could leave my lack of knowledge in the Father's keeping. Y'all... There's some things you want to know about, isn't there? Some things I want to know about. And apparently, the Father in Heaven has said, you're going to know all that stuff eventually, Matt. But for right now, just trust that I can carry it for you. I believe he also says to some of us, hey, you're going to go through some experiences. 
and they're going to be too hard for you to carry. Can you trust me to carry you in those situations? And if we're willing to trust, it's a great life ahead, which is the fifth point. Simply this, trust. It's one of the key words of Isaiah. Early in the book, God is saying, hey, don't trust Assyria because they're not your friend. And yet, Judah wants to put their trust in Assyria. Don't trust in Egypt because you're scared of Assyria because Egypt's not your friend. Trust in me. And they don't. And because of that, they get hauled off to Babylon. Eventually, Persia takes over Babylon. And King Cyrus says, hey, anybody want to go back home? To Judah. Anybody want to go back home? To Jerusalem. I'll pay your way. How cool is that? And so they come back. But before they come back, they hear the word of the Lord in verse 10. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on God. It's one of the major themes of Isaiah because right here, the Lord's saying, Messiah is coming. He may come the way you want him to, but only if you want the way I want. He's going to come probably as a big surprise to many of you. He's going to come suffering. They're going to pull his beard out. They're going to whip his back. They're going to spit on him. They're going to put him on a Roman gibbet. He's going to die a vicious death. That's who's going to save you. You doubt it? Trust me. Anybody here gutsy enough to do that? To trust in him? Jesus says to you today, trust me. Fully rely on me. Close your eyes. This is what I'd love for you to do. If this is too weird for you, don't do it. But I hope it's not too weird. Lock eyes with Jesus right now. Just see two eyeballs looking right at you. And just lock eyes with those eyes. Lock your mind's eyes with those eyes looking right at you. Because right now those eyes are saying, I love you. I know it's tough. I know you've been through some things. You're also going to go through some things. But I love you. I want you to trust completely in me. Will you? Will you? In the grace of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we will. Amen. Amen. And amen. God bless you.